Are you ready? Hey everybody! Hey folks! Hello everybody! People in the back! Welcome everybody! Welcome to the inner loop! Welcome everybody! Welcome to the inner loop! Without further ado! Without further ado! Okay, so without further ado, we're gonna get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rolling. I'm rolling. We're, we're, we're gonna get started. <laughs> Welcome to the Inner Loop Radio. I'm Rachel Koontz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you stream from. The Inner Loop Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and many other streaming sites. If there's somewhere you'd like to hear the Inner Loop Radio where it isn't currently available, shoot us an email at theinnerlooplit at gmail.com. On today's episode, we have an exciting hour of local literature planned for you. But first, for those of you who don't know, The Inner Loop is a literary reading series for writers in the D.C. area to come and read their own work each month. Writers' experience varies from the absolute, be- absolute beginner to Pulitzer Prize winners, and they range in genre from poetry to fiction to nonfiction and everything in between. And on The Inner Loop Radio, we like to give our listeners a sampling of some of those authors who read at our events, as well as going further in-depth on the writing experience and discussing relevant topics to the writing life. This month, we're going to explore how conflict and trauma can be transformed into something positive and or productive through writing, as well as using writing as a means to work through that trauma and conflict. Yeah, that's right. Um... Over the years, we've had several writers at our live events who've referred to different traumas or conflicts, either overtly or with subtle undertones in their work. And thinking about it, just, you know, from stuff that I've read over the years, not necessarily from our live events, some of the strongest pieces of writing in history have come out of major strife. Yes, it is a classic uh, source of inspiration. (laughs) Um, And while that can mean many different things and manifest in different ways, we thought this topic would be appropriate for this month, Memorial Day, which reminds us how many people in our community, especially here in D.C., um, have been touched by this specific kind of trauma. Um, Several of our writers are former or current members of the armed services, and it's remarkable to see how it's reflected in their writing. Yeah, um, you know, I think I'm trying to remember back to the first time we had a veteran writer come read with us. Wasn't it Rob? It was Rob. I think it must have been <laughs> Rob. So going to be joining us later yes. on the show. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, with a nonfiction piece. And oh, yeah. So that came out of I had been working on abroad. Actually, it was weird. It took me um, going out of the country to kind of reflect on some of my own experiences and bring them together with the rest of the world. I know that sounds like weird, (laughs) Um, but I was in, I was overseas, I was in France and ended up uh, in Normandy kind of Mm. without having planned on being there Mm -hmm. Um, and was just... You know, walking around Paris, you're like, oh, all the art and the cathedrals and the this and the that. And it's beautiful (laughs) and wonderful. But none of those were the things that, like, struck me. And here I was sitting there, 
you know, across the street from a house where Hemingway lived. And all I could think about was this embodied sense of war and conflict Mm -hmm. in a literal sense, like there on the beaches at Normandy, but then also thinking back to stories my grandmother had told, things that I'd gone through as an individual that weren't related to battlefield war, but all of them came bubbling to the surface. And um, Yeah, and it's funny how every generation kind of has a war or some kind of serious conflict, at least in America, right? Um, that really informs your experience and your gener- like the outlook of your entire generation. Like for, for us, our generation, you know, 9-11 kind of kicked off a whole like experience that we experience as a group of people. Totally. The, I mean, the culture in America changed forever. I mean, I guess the world too, by in turn, but yeah, it... And for the generations after us who weren't alive or don't remember right. 9-11, um, they'll have a different experience. They'll have a different turning point because the generations before us, you know, our parents' generation and the Vietnam War and before them, the World exactly. War II. And I feel like, unfortunately, and kind of like part of human nature is there's always some major conflict um, that informs our existence. Absolutely. People can't exist without... <laughs> it's human nature, I guess. Beating each other up. I don't know. Um, and, you know, I when we were thinking about this show, one of the things I was worried, I was like, oh, it's going to be really heavy and and deep (laughs) and dark. And I mean, it is, it's true. We can't avoid those things, especially now as we're seeing, you know, conflict here at home in America in a different way. Like we're, Mm -hmm. we're at war with each other in a very kind of metaphysical space right now, Mm -hmm. I feel like, um, and that's weird in itself because we're we're also I think used to this over there sensation, right? Right. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, and I was just thinking like even for those of us like myself who don't like watch the news very often, mm-hmm. much to my partner's chagrin, um, or stay up to date on current events, um, it may not seem like the wars that are happening right now are informing our experience of the world but they do in subtle ways and they and it has like a ripple effect um and in terms of conflict i mean in terms of like the philosophical question right right of of human conflict right you know (laughs) maybe veterans experience it on this really intense level that even you know for us who it's like a subtle effect Mm -hmm. it's much more immediate in their their face um you know, we can relate to that in much in in the ripple effects, in the ripple places where, no, it's not the same thing as what they're experiencing by a long shot. Um, but we can certainly uh, sympathize with elements of trauma, sure. elements of experiencing something really intense that you may not understand in the moment and may take your entire life to understand. Absolutely. And that's, I think, where the writing comes in and where we see, absolutely, yeah, you know, these people who come to our live events and also um, uh, just some of the folks we'll hear from later today, how it, it took time to realize that that was there and that's what the writing was serving a purpose as to kind of work it out and work through it. Um, but the other thing that I think is really cool is being able to transfer that experience so that we others can mm, understand it, yeah. you know? Um, to tap into that um, shared experience. Exactly. 
to create understanding for something that's actually really hard to imagine. Right. As someone who hasn't experienced it. If you've not it. experienced it. Yeah. Um, well, I think that we're going to play a few clips from some of our live events. Um, so stay tuned as we introduce you to some of those writers who've really shown how conflict can be a source of creative inspiration and in turn build those connections that help move past it. drunk, lousy song, sung, worn out, sung, picked from a pickup behind the public works building, sung drowsy, swaying, sang, and spilled the song, broken by the dog I loved and could not keep, sung myself alone, walking home in my <clears throat> waitress apron, song snorted, stung, bandages from the wrist of my past, like a fruit peel sticks, song scraping it off. The wash and repeat cycle song I spun, bitter song buttered on my stepmother's mouth, half talk song. My father to the screaming, the shearers hold on to the kicking one's song. Song enough, song song everybody knows one. Song rewound like a butter's churn, my teenage yearn returned. Song like a star appears and like a star appears the same for someone else from very far away. Song heard through the concrete walls. Song I need, song I need, song I need. Appears the song like two yellow eyes in a drainage ditch where someone lonely feeds an alligator. No one will hold your hand during the revolution. The children, they fall to the floor like you taught them. I cling to the only tree left standing, burned thin as a matchstick, swatting at the flies, dancing over the hole in my stomach. There was no moon in the sky. I dreamt I had your blood on my hands. I cling to the only tree left standing, burned thin as a matchstick. You remember how it was? The boy screaming, Papa, into the air. There was no moon in the sky. I dreamt I had your blood on my hands. You lay across my lap, two bandoliers still strapped to your chest. You remember how it was. The boys screaming, Papa, into the air. All the girls, becoming women, huddled around my body. You lay across my lap, two bandoliers still strapped to your chest. The heat it dries my lips until they flake. It's still hot and I like it. All the girls becoming women huddled around my body. Your oldest son, he takes a switchblade to my cheek. The heat dries my lips until they flake. It's still hot and I like it. My children will learn to love the hard way. Your oldest son, he takes a switchblade to my cheek without knowing the sins of his father, why I had to do it. My children will, will learn to love the hard way. I promise there 
bleeding into a soaked patch of earth. Yes, I remember that night, my arms becoming heavy, swatting the flies, dancing over the hole in my stomach. We grow weak, and I lean against the charred bark, watching the children fall to the floor like you taught them. After Buddy left for the Navy, I still had Mama and Daddy and Grandmama, and I had Sister. I never called her anything but Sister, except for when I was a baby. She was the first person I called Mama. But my mama put the end to that right quick. I'm your mama, she's your sister. Sister took me everywhere, to school functions and even on dates. She wouldn't go unless the boys would take me too. Sister was beautiful and fun and popular, so the boys went along. I think I went on more, to, more, to more parties and sock hops as a baby than I did in high school. Then when I was three, and I remember this, sister started being too busy to play with me. I remember the first time I jumped onto her bed in the morning to wake her up, and she didn't smile. She got mad at me. Then one day she went away and left me with a fear that would plague me for, uh, in some form for my whole life. People who loved me could go away and leave me. Could Mama leave me too? The thought of losing Mama terrified me. I knew that she wouldn't just go away if Sister and Buddy had gone, but she could die. What if she died? This new fear was more terrible than all the others in a, uh, that a three-year-old could have. So serious that I started to pray to God about it every night and continued to pray through most of my school years. But I didn't pray to God not to let Mama die. No, I was afraid it would give him the idea. So I tricked him. I prayed, dear God, please let Mama wake up feeling good in the morning. <clears throat> when Sister left, she went into the United States Army Daddy and Buddy were mad at her for doing that and tried to talk her out of it, but she did it anyway. The Army sent her far away so she didn't get to come home for a long time and because it cost a lot of money and she didn't have much money because she didn't go to college to get her education so she could amount to something. That, Daddy said, for sure wasn't his fault. He tried to get her to go. Before Sister joined the Army, Daddy had paid for her to go to nursing school, but she quit. Later, she told me that she stayed until they told her she had to brush somebody's teeth. That was it for her. She walked out and went straight to the Army recruiting office and joined the very next day. Buddy said, decent girls don't go in the Army. I saw a picture Mama cut out of the paper with my sister and two other girls taking the, uh, the oath. I knew Buddy must have been talking about the other ones because, uh, who, who weren't decent, not sister. But I wondered and worried about it. I wanted my sister to be decent. The Army sent sister all the way to France, and there she married a man we never even met until after they were married. He was from New York City, and he was Italian, and he was Catholic, and sometimes he drank beer. Sometimes, finally, she was coming home again. It was five days before Christmas. I was too excited to go to sleep, and Santa Claus wasn't the reason. It was sister. I was going to be with her for the first time in two years. It felt, it felt like more than two, but I was little and years were longer then. I was expecting to show my sister off like a prize to everybody. Everybody in the family and on Batane Street, they all loved her. But I knew that I was the one she loved the most, and I was the one she missed the most, the one she would play with now that she was coming home again. Finally, it was morning. Daddy picked her up at the train station and brought her home. 
but it wasn't like I thought it would be. Sister just wanted to sleep all day because they'd come so far, and when she woke up, she had to tend to her baby. It wasn't as much fun with him, the, her baby there. It wasn't that I didn't like him. I just didn't like him around. He was cute enough, I guess. He had red hair like Sister, but I, I wasn't sure I liked it on a boy. I held him and played with him a little when he wasn't crying, but he cried a lot. Every time I asked Sister to play with me, she, uh, or look at pictures I drew for her, she had to go and tend to him. I'd gotten used to being an only child, and now this screaming baby was taking everybody's attention. <clears throat> I was sure Sister wanted to play with me, but she, he just didn't let her. I knew she didn't like him more than she liked me. The best day came when Mama took care of him and Sister and I went off to Pritchard by ourselves. Nobody was so much fun as Sister. She made going to, to Cress's for sodas an adventure. We tried on hats and ear bobs, and she bought me a tangy natural lipstick, but Daddy took it and threw it away. After we had Sundays at the, at the soda fountain at Cress's Five and Dime, we went over to J.C. Penney's, and she let me try on high heel shoes. <laughs> if I didn't like her baby all that much, her husband was a different story. I loved him from the minute I saw him, and he had plenty of time for me. I think it was probably really scary for him to come to Pritchard with all the new people, uh, especially since he was so different. His name was Richard, and he wasn't like anybody I ever met. Being from New York City, he didn't talk the same way we did. His words sounded harder, and, and some words like sure and warm didn't sound at all like ours because they didn't have ours in them. <laughs> Even though he was the one who sounded different, he laughed at us. I liked, I liked listening to him. He told me about New York and places with funny names like Battery and Meatpacking. He grew up in a place called the Bowery. I knew about that because I'd seen the Bowery Boys movies on television. His stories made me want to go there. New York had all the different kinds of people from all places as far away as China and stores where you could get anything from anywhere in the world. Rich was just about the most interesting person I ever met. And <clears throat> ever met, and I wanted to do everything he did, just as he did, including the way he walked around with the shirt unbuttoned and sat straddling the chair from the back, but Mama said I couldn't. <laughs> All the aunts and uncles and cousins came to the house for Christmas dinner. After a while, I got bored because nobody was my age. Even my cousins were older than I. Nobody paid me any attention at all. At dinner, they talked about stuff I didn't care about, like cars. Uncle Stanley said that he was thinking about buying a used Mercedes-Benz car with a diesel engine. He and Daddy got into a big argument about it. Daddy said it was stupid because in some states they added taxes to the truck for the truck drivers onto the diesel engines and to the diesel gas. I had no idea what they were talking about. When that was over, they talked about some war in Korea and the draft. They talked about the draft, led Mama to, the talk about the draft led Mama to say something that shocked my aunts and uncles. She declared, if boys are going to be drafted, then girls should be drafted right along by, with them. Aunt Pauline said, you can't mean that, Eva. But Mama meant it. She, uh, she meant, Mama always meant the things she said. When they weren't talking about the news, they talked about baby Ricky and how cute he was and how lucky he was to have his mother's red hair. And they talked on and on, all the reasons he cried a lot. Maybe he was coming down with something. Maybe it's just the weather difference. But I knew. Baby always changed things, just like they did with Buddy. 
That was Nancy Pearson reading Lullaby from her book The Whole by Contemplation of a Single Bone. Samantha de Trinidad reading the poem No One Will Hold Your Hand During the Revolution. And Ruthie Pastel Birch reading from her book How to Build a Piano Bench Lessons for Success from a Red Dirt Road in Alabama. Up next, we'll talk to an Interloop alum who has read with us about conflict. Stay tuned. Discussing conflict and how it can be transformed through writing. Let's listen to an Interloop alum read one of his pieces, Rob Kunzig. Where you won't find him. You won't find him in a rock, but you'll go anyway. You'll waste two years in the desert, penned up in the green zone with your Windsor knot and your diplomatic passport, wondering what makes some men brave and others bureaucrats. He wasn't even in Baghdad. He was in Aramadi, the bleeding edge of the Sunni Triangle, 70 miles away and six years prior. It was the war he had waited for, and at first he couldn't believe his luck. Then he learned the sound of incoming mortar fire. He learned how good it felt to shoot and not be shot, how even killing has its context. You won't find him in the DFAC or dining facility, as mill speak has infiltrated the civilian lexicon, and no one in Iraq calls anything what it is anymore. Your food, stir-fry with fish sauce, surf and turf on Thursday nights, is not his food. Marines don't eat that well. Stationed at Combat Outpost, a small, grubby mortar magnet in the city center, he got two meals a day, shuttled down the IED-ridden main supply route by Marines who couldn't believe they were risking their lives to deliver hot chow. You won't find him in your office, where career diplomats doggy paddle through their one-year tours. No. His office was the driver's seat of a Humvee, jerry-rigged with extra armor to give him a fighting chance against roadside bombs. The first time he got hit, the flash whited out his night vision goggles, blinding him, and crashed his jaws together, chipping a tooth. He patted himself down. Nothing leaking? All good. Proceed with mission. You won't find him in the reports you write, lukewarm success stories that claim tangible progress and sustainable results. Fifty widows supplied with sewing machines is just that, but in your hands, it becomes livelihoods for Iraq's most vulnerable. You plant the milestone, and the agency moves on, leaving those fifty widows to hawk their sewing machines for fast cash. He didn't write reports. He wrote you emails, and he did not equivocate. When you challenged him on good and evil because you were taking intro to philosophy, he didn't spare you. Civilians live in a fantasy world, he wrote. I used to. There's no difference between self-defense and cold-blooded murder, except by what you call it to help you sleep at night. Some dudes got wasted last night for shooting at us. Probably wasn't them. They just happened to be on a roof in the general vicinity, looking guilty. We all agreed they were asking for it anyway. We popped some illumination and the 50 cal went to work. He wrote poetry. Short fiction. Essays fired like warning shots into his black marble notebook because no matter how cool he played it, it did bother him. The guys on the roof, the guys at the checkpoints, the guys in all the houses the Marines invaded at zero dark, 
the guys who they pressed into the carpets of their homes, knees on their spines, while their wives and children watched. You won't find them at the landing zone, where you wait in the pre-dawn darkness for the State Department helicopters to take you out of this country for good, your contract concluded, your service rendered. You knew it would end like this, but you came anyway, because at one point, you preferred trying and failing over failing to try. The helo whips powder-fine dust across the tarmac, and you bow your head against it. When he left Iraq, he was surrounded by his brothers, slung between them in the body bag. The hot wind whipped their tears sideways, and they bowed their heads against the prop wash. After the helo took him away, they kicked sand over the blood, and they kept fighting, because while the world stopped for you, the war stopped for no one, and some don't have the luxury of mourning. Here's where you can find him, though you can't go. Fowler's Beach, Delaware. Before the towers, before the war, before our safety was color-coded by the Department of Homeland Security. He wore a surfer t-shirt and drank warm Malibu and Sprite out of a paper cup. You built a fire and stripped off your shirts and charged into the surf, hoping that the girls would follow. They didn't. So you sat on the dunes and talked about Kerouac and made plans to quit school and go spearfishing in Mexico. When you woke up, he was kicking sand over the last glowing embers. Driving home, he puts on Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and the opening lick of I'm the Man Who Loves You cuts into your hangover like a buzzsaw. But you don't mind, because this is all new to you. The booze, the song, bonfires on the beach. You're 16, and it's July 2001, and so far as you cared, the world wasn't going to change unless you wanted it to. That was Interlube alum Rob Kunzik, who joins us now on the phone. Hey, Rob. Hey, Court. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's great to have you on. Thank you for calling in. Um, so for listeners out there, Rob is an alum, as we mentioned, a really good friend of ours. That was a recording of him reading Where You Won't Find Him. Um, and he's currently a photojournalist who's living abroad with his son and wife who's on active duty. So we're lucky to have him on the line today. Where, where are you right, right this second, Rob? <laughs> right this second, I'm between Pure and Riga, Latvia. In Latvia? Great. So, Rob, this piece talks a lot about um, an event that impacted yeah. you very... Sorry, um, that's all right. We're, we're with you. We just wanted to dig into this piece a little bit because um, I know it really impacted you early on in life and shaped some of your decisions and your writing work. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, Chad's death really changed everything for me um, because I had seen our life growing up together as kind of a, um, a dialogue between someone who is very clear and determined in his purpose in life, um, his determination to join the Marine Corps and to seek combat and to seek some truth out of combat. And, you know, my role, which was a lot more uh, contemplative and academic, and I sought answers in books versus the trial of combat. Um, so when his, I guess, quest culminated the way it did, um, it it raised a lot of questions um, and it made me question sort of the worth of what I was doing and the validity of writing 
and study as a, as a means of um, seeking truth and of resolving the issues I had with his death. Um, and it's kind of an ongoing process. Yeah, I was I was gonna ask, you know, how long did it take you before you could start writing about it? It did, was it kind of immediate your way of grieving, or did it take time to allow yourself to put those feelings into words? Oh, it was immediate. Um, I had promised Chad under um, no, you know, under conditions with zero ambiguity, ambiguity that I had to, uh, I'd write a story if he bid it in Iraq. He made me promise that. And um, that's awful. That's an awful thing to live with. Um, so I'm, after he died, I immediately compiled all of his um, emails, our instant messenger conversations, and I started assembling it, assembling the excavation and trying to make sense out of it and trying to figure out how I was going to tell the story. And so I immediately thought that I would write a book, a novel, um, and our fictionalized versions were so hackneyed and so like, <laughs> you know, never will you read anything where it's more clear that someone's just clearly trying to work out their issues in print. Um, <laughs> it's brutally hackneyed. Um, it's, uh, looking back on it, it's pretty cringeworthy, but <laughs> it was what it needed to be at the time, which was an outlet. Um, it was a place for me to bleed. Um, I wrote it in his room, sitting on uh, the floor of wow. his room, which was exactly how he had left it when he left the rock. And, um, I, God, I probably wrote a hundred thousand words and then I just couldn't anymore because uh, the story had nowhere to go and it fulfilled its purpose. Mm. And has anything, what has, what's come of the, those words since then? Have you repurposed them or turned them into something else? Um, that bit, that bit in particular, <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's not salvageable. There's nothing really that can be done. That's just sort of a, a totem to the summer of 2005 uh, right. when I was grieving um, mm -hmm. but I've but Chad informs everything I do um, right. Chad informs literally in the like when I look at a I wrote a piece for Politico magazine mm -hmm. in 2014 yeah I remember I that piece yep mm -hmm. right um, which was uh, similar to this piece a little less a little more straightforward a lo little more of an essay different audience um, <laughs> Yeah, sorry, that was my son coughing in the background. <laughs> so I um, but, actually relate to this idea of um, working through trauma. Like the first draft, I think, is almost necessary as something that you write to sort out what's happening in your mind, sort out what happened in the past. And that first draft is almost always something that goes nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, and then... Uh, like you, I, I feel like I've written about trauma and that trauma kind of um, informs a lot of my writing since then. And the more I write about it, the better the writing gets um, when I try to approach what happened. Mm -hmm. um, each draft, I feel like, or each new thing that I try to create from that experience um, gets better every time. Right. Um, so for me, it's I, I've, I've pivoted away from addressing Chad directly. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, and what I do now, which is, um, I'm a photographer and videographer for NATO. Um, 
I, I find that Chad informs that a lot. It informs everything, actually, because I've really... I have a great affinity for telling the stories of soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines and people who uh, volunteer for military service, something that doesn't pay a lot and carries a lot of inherent risk. Um, and I've gained that affinity by getting to know guys who Chad served with mm-hmm. and you know, just getting to know them in the years since and following them as they reflect on that tour, 2004, 2005 in Ramadi. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so, so right now I'm doing a story on a company of Danish infantry, and uh, they've deployed a few times to Afghanistan. A lot of the non-commissioned officers have combat experience in Afghanistan, and I find that that helps me talk to them on a... Uh, it, it's just much easier. We connect immediately because you have shared values about some things, and you have a shared understanding about some things, and um, that just eliminates a lot of the getting to know you, the ice breaking, mm-hmm. the comfort and trust establishing that happens in a lot of relationships like this where you're asking for somebody to make themselves vulnerable for the camera. It's a lot easier when you have when you share that same understanding about what's important. Mm-hmm. That sounds like really so that's something positive. Absolutely. That's a really That's a know, perfect example of, right. of turning mm-hmm. some uh conflict into a productive piece of art. And helping to get those stories out there in in a way that, you know, not many people have access to that type of kind of intimate relationship that you've you've been able to build. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you for joining us. On yeah, the show, we know it. <laughs> we know it was a <laughs> yeah. lot. Um, it's great and, to hear from you. And before, uh, just one last note. Yeah. Um, I, I want to spotlight the great work being done by veterans um, in journalism today. So you have like uh, T.M. Gibbons-Neff at the New York Times, C.J. Chivers at the New York Times, um, Alex Horton at the Washington Post, uh, and tons more that I I simply can't remember at the moment. Um, Veterans are providing some of the most incisive military reporting going on today, and their experience is so valuable in a newsroom because they know, like when a mass shooting happens, in America, they know exactly what an M16 or an mm-hmm. AR-15 variant does and, and why that's different from a hunting rifle, for example. Um, you know, these men and women with combat experience and with military experience um, cover or can uh, color and shade military coverage in such an important way. So any editors who are hiring and listening right now hire veterans agreed thank you for that (laughs) that's a really good point (laughs) thanks so much rob thanks rob drive soup yeah 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 cheers ciao continuing our show on writing about conflict we'll be interviewing a veteran who's also a writer here in the studio gather Um, you can gather in. Gather around, gather around for the second half. And we're going to get started. We're going to get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. We'd now like to welcome our next guest, Jacqueline Bankfort. Jacqueline is a writer living and working here in D.C., and she is a veteran of the U.S. Navy. We're excited to have her with us. Hi, Jacqueline. 
Hello. Thanks for joining us on the, in the studio. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to have you here today, and I know you have a couple of pieces to read for us. So why don't we start with one of them, and then we can chit-chat. Okay. Um, the first piece I'll read is uh, called Signs, and it was published by Noble Gas Quarterly. Signs. The monkey did not live for long. He lost interest in the stuffed dog pretty much right away. The farther away the shuttle, the more garbled and fanciful the sign language the monkey had been taught became. His silent status reports populated with cows and moons and musical cats. Shortly after he entered orbit around Mars, we noticed his vitals growing weaker. We watched on the monitor as he struggled with a banana, his paws jerking with frustration over the stubborn peel. Finally he threw it away, the lack of gravity dulling its motion as it cruised in a lazy yellow parabola. He watched it float for a moment or two, then turned back to the small triangular window that gave a view of the planet's surface, all rust and blooming black mold. He looked into the camera, into our eyes, it almost seemed. Bringing one paw up to his face, he made a chopping motion three times. Then he died. Mm. The room remained silent until a throat was cleared. One of the guys had a deaf teenager at home. He said the sign meant, you bastard, you bastard, you bastard. Someone swore aloud, and then we all laughed, because nobody had ever taught the monkey that. Man. <laughs> There's so much I want to talk about in that piece. Um, can you tell us a little bit first just about your background? Give a frame of reference here where you were coming from when you wrote that one. Sure. Um, I wrote that one in an online workshop um, with the Dr. T.J. Eckelberg review. Okay. Uh, shortly after I moved to D.C., which was around the time I left active duty, um, and the assignment was to write a death scene. And for whatever reason, that basically popped out more or less fully formed. I mean, I edited it after, um, but the the idea of it, I don't know where it came from. It just was there. Mm. So. And that was, so tell us a little bit about your service and sure. where that, how that, how that may have led to <laughs> this monkey vision. <laughs> um, so I, um, when I was 18, uh, I left home uh, 2002, spring of 2002, and I entered the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, following that, I did four years of the Naval Academy, uh, got a Bachelor of Science degree in English, spent two years overseas getting a master's degree in anthropology from Oxford, and then... So that's where the monkey comes from. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of uh, <laughs> behavioral stuff. But then, and then I spent... Um, the next several years at sea as a surface warfare officer with the Navy, and I served on two different ships. I think part of what informed this one and what I, I couldn't have written it without um, being is that on my second tour at sea, I was a combat information center officer. So I spent a lot of time in control room settings, mm -hmm. uh, watching from a distance, you know, th things that we had set in motion and watching them sort of fall apart in some cases wow. um, because events always overtake your plans as you're, tr as you're trying to, even in training, um, we would, we would, you know, the ship that I was on was the kind of ship that opens up the back and small boats go out of it. Okay. Wow. Um, 
and we would control those boats or we would attempt to control those boats from within the CIC uh, where I was working and you'd have tested everything but suddenly you'd lose communications with Mm -hmm. them or you'd see them going off course and you weren't sure why maybe you couldn't talk to them or you were just tracking them so I think um, it kind of grew out of that experience of um, of being being the person controlling something and being in this room and also just sort of the humor that informs the piece is very dark I think (laughs) and I think that's also an outgrowth of my service because you're you're dealing with a lot of serious stuff but at the same time there's this sort of um, trying to lighten the mood or to to loosen yourself up a little bit Absolutely, and I feel like you kind of have to detach on some levels, mm-hmm. and, and that's what we do, and that's a weird feeling of um, knowing you're in control, but also knowing you have no control mm-hmm. over yeah. anything. Um, yeah, that's what I love about that piece, is, um, and what you're saying is everything, everything is set up for you to have complete control. Yeah, and you do everything in your power to make sure that you will have control over the situation, and yet, time and time again, you don't have all the control. Yeah. <laughs> it's like everything in life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then, you know, it's hard to. I the element of this that is also interesting to me is this kind of who has say in in what's happening. So when we think about war and conflict in in the sense of voluntary duty um is one thing but this monkey he didn't volunteer yeah (laughs) you know and and it's amazing is there are actually uh, monuments to military animals around the country because and that's sort of the theme of them is they didn't choose to serve but they served well right Mm -hmm. um well this piece i i know is fiction and a little bit less um directly about or from service and and we've talked in the past and you said that um a lot of your writing wasn't directly about or from your service initially Mm -hmm. and that's kind of been a process you've grown into i know you have another piece that is a little more directly related do you want to read that one and then we can share a bit sure all right um this one's a poem and i um besides uh not wanting to write about military service i also really fought against being a poet for a long time (laughs) we all do (laughs) i finally was like you know what this is what i do so (laughs) this is called this is a poem about terror i spent the summer before the five-year anniversary of 9-11 riding the metro to the pentagon station and worrying over what a soft target it seemed but this was the summer when bags of bad spinach killed three people Also the summer when I got married and shortly thereafter found a lump, which, after a biopsy and my many tears, was found to be benign, and I began to learn to comfort myself with statistical likelihoods of death by whatever, my point being that the things that are killing you in America are not the things you fear. so that actually is an autogra- autobiographical poem, <laughs> which so many poems are, um, and and that is, it in time it falls from shortly after the time I was commissioned, uh, but um, I didn't write that for years uh, because I didn't know how to write about it for a long time. Um, how much I was working uh, at a think tank at the time 
waiting sort of between my my bachelor's degree and my master's degree filling the time um writing about how, how terror terror groups form um so it was on my mind and every morning um i was riding into the pentagon and then getting on a on a bus that would take me the the last mile down the road to this think tank that i was working at um and and just worried all the time uh, and I had never sort of understood what terrorism was until mm -hmm. that point, mm -hmm. especially because when I joined, um, even though I joined directly in the aftermath of 9-11, that felt very distant because I grew up in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and so the whole event, while it was very shocking and very uh, important to my life at the same time, had felt so far away remote yeah and then i went from you know the center of the continent being as far away as as i could be without being on the other coast to being you know, a few miles from <laughs> where some of it had taken <laughs> place um mm -hmm. and and then you know and then and then i realized i could i could die eating a salad so i don't know if it's worth worrying about which doesn't always you know stop me from Comfort. being anxious <laughs> but at the same time it helps a little bit sometimes right. so. <laughs> um so when did you kind of start using your writing to work through some of these things and and ca carrying on that question mm -hmm. as well you can answer them as you like <laughs> do you use writing to separate out those different aspects of your life uh, that's a good question <laughs> uh, i think i I actually started writing about serving when I was still at the Naval Academy um, and I was in a group that we would talk about uh, what it was like to be um, a woman or or just the gendered experience of being at the military academy mm -hmm. or the Naval Academy mm -hmm. um, but then I kind of pushed back against that for a long time and I was writing fairly regularly the last year or so that I was in uh, but I was writing strictly fiction mm -hmm. not writing about the day-to-day -day. I wrote I had some diary entries but those I never really thought of going anywhere it was just an outlet um, so and I and I didn't want to be like I'm a veteran so you have to read what I'm writing I almost felt like that was a cheat code that's a really interesting <laughs> perspective and, uh, and I you know and I've I've been dealing with this in different ways I had some um, like academic awards that I received as an undergrad that I don't really want to use because I want the work to sort of speak for itself um, so it's a, a question to me of um, you know I, I don't want the being a veteran necessarily to open the door i want the work to open the door and maybe that's being expecting a lot um i think everybody has their different ways of of getting their work seen um so it, so i had not planned really to write about my service um and i had lived in dc since early 2012 um, and i started to probably in middle of 2013 started doing a lot of in-person workshops mm -hmm. there are great workshops all around the city um, politics and prose host workshops some of the smithsonian museums host workshops and i would go with no real intention of writing anything in particular at all and it just kept coming up mm -hmm. i would sit down we would 
read a poem and then the next thing I know I would be writing about like the way that a ship smells mm-hmm. um, or uh, recently I did a workshop with Wulona Sloan and it, we looked at um, the Sylvia Plath exhibit mm-hmm. at the National Portrait Gallery and we were looking at there was a, a display of bell jars that had been electrified and they played music and they were uh, blue and red and they reminded me of a circulatory system and then I wrote a piece um, about about this transit where I was in charge of of safely getting us through a very tight piece of water um, and and what that did to me and then actually that was one of the first times I think I integrated um, my experience as a naval officer with my experience as being a mother and it actually oh. shocked me when I wrote it um, because I just had never seen um, some of the ways that those were tying together in my life so I think right now a lot of what I'm trying to do is integrate all these different pieces of my life that seem very disjointed Mm -hmm. and understand how they are all a part of me and a part of of what I'm going to write even if it's nothing if even if it's not so straightforward as I served and then now I am a parent and I am a writer um, it might be much hopefully much more <laughs> subtle than that yeah but. absolutely I think that totally speaks to the idea of the conflict being this subtle thing in the background that sort of has echoes throughout mm-hmm. your whole life or any experiences of um, trauma I think even though they're not really there in this tangible way there's like um, uh, echoes of them I can't think of a better word Yeah, a I sense mean, of them yeah sorry um it's like we have ghosts from everything you know Mm -hmm. and and some we see and hear from more regularly (laughs) um others tend to to kind of flip there in the background but one other thing you mentioned um and I think is really cool aside from this being almost a form of and I I don't know, I, I hesitate to use the word therapy when mm-hmm. talking about writing because certainly there is very direct, you know, art therapy and and writing therapy, but I think, you know, we perceive that differently for ourselves and what that means. But um, in addition to the outlet that it is for you, you've also become quite involved in a community mm-hmm. here in D.C. through your writing. Right. Uh, the Armed Services Arts Partnership is uh, an organization here in D.C. that I've been lucky to participate in a lot of their workshops uh, and classes and they offer a chance for veterans in DC and in Hampton Roads Virginia as well uh, to take classes in storytelling and stand-up comedy and improv comedy but other things as well sort of uh, they'll do one-off workshops I've taken um, create just a general creative writing class with them I took uh, songwriting uh, I'll be taking watercolor postcards later this month <laughs> which I'm really excited <laughs> about um, and that being a part of that community has really um, helped me embrace that part of my personality that I think I was trying to kind of set to the side um, and I wasn't always comfortable claiming that label of being a veteran and that's mm-hmm. one thing that I think ASAP has helped with is saying is sort of legitimizing different forms of experience and helping people give that um, to take that label and 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 also transform it so that it's it is something that they're comfortable claiming because I think there's sort of the veteran the the veteran that gets seen um, 
over and over and over again in movies or uh, on television it's a really the portrayal is is really one note mm. um and there's the military is so much more varied and broad than people realize even though we're a small group overall um the the different jobs people do that i had the idea i had going in was everything will be very gray mm -hmm. and dark my <laughs> life will be very hard and not funny and not beautiful and i actually remember picking out the most colorful toothbrush i could find before <laughs> i reported because i was like this will be the bit of color in my life <laughs> which is so far from true um and just just but that was th that was the expectation I had going in, even though I had family members who had served. So that's part of why I want to put my story out, claim that label for myself and make it my own in some way. Um, because I think despite being at war as a country for the last, you know, almost two decades now, mm -hmm. uh, people still don't necessarily know what the military does like what does a surface warfare officer do i say to people i was a warship driver but that's just barely scratches the surface of all the different things that i did when i was serving well thank you so much for joining us on the show it's so wonderful to have you here thank you for having me and um, you are really a light to have in this studio. i know people can't <laughs> see you but it's it's really cool to see just the oh, radiating here and thank you for your service and yes. we're looking forward to seeing more of your writing Right. Thank you so much. Up next, we'll close out this month's show with one last poem to leave you contemplating how we live and write in a world full of conflict. Well, sometimes it seems like the universe has a purpose for pain. Perhaps that it brings us all closer together as a people. We've been so inspired by the pieces we've heard today and the people we've had the pleasure of talking to. We certainly have. And we just wanted to leave you with one more thing, uh, a real mother of a poem. Here's Beth Spezia reading Mother of All Bombs. Heaven knows if it will end in fire, ice, or rote distraction. At the gate, everyone gazes at a device. Even as the sun takes a purpled plunge, even as the invisible hums, evil must be handheld, slack-jawed and personal. Watch, God proven in three minutes. I have seen the complete summa of Aquinas, its secrets uncracked and dustbound as a mountain cast in the gold moon's glow. I have watched the smoke billow from the mother of all bombs, her charcoal face almost celestial. Feet washed, black fuzz floats to the surface like dead flies, and the night ends in the garden as it was written, weeping. That was Beth Spezia reading The Mother of All Bombs and Proving the Existence of God Through Evil. That's our show. Join us next month for what we hope is another inspiring episode. 
To find out more about us or to submit to read at our next event, please visit www.theinnerlooplit.com. The Inner Loop would like to thank Andrew Logan for our theme music and James Skinner for technical support. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or any other streamings that you use. Your review could be what inspires the next person to tune in or start writing. And don't forget to subscribe yourself so you never miss an episode. Happy writing. Right on, Litwitz.